Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I get triggered. You, if you're courageous enough to listen further, might also get triggered. Now, you might be thinking, um, what are you talking about, Steve, you, you bearded provocative genius. Why would I want to listen to a podcast episode that might trigger me? Well, first of all, words of affirmation are my love language. So thank you for your compliment. Second, we're going to talk about how you can use those moments when you are triggered as opportunities for personal exploration, insight, and growth. So buckle up, strap in, lock and load, you know, any other get ready metaphor you want to use, and let's get triggered. Before, during, or after you get triggered, you are welcome to leave comments below if you're watching on YouTube. You can also email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Uh, please give us a rating and review if you're listening on a podcast app like Apple or Spotify. That helps the show climb in the directories and gets us exposed to more people who we might enjoy triggering, or excuse me, who we might enjoy uh, educating. You can also follow Reed, myself, and Novamind on Inst- Instagram at Dr. Steve Thayer, at Innerspace Doctor, or at Novamind Inc. All right, you ready? Let's go. Trigger warning, but not really. Today, Dr. Reed Robson and I are going to talk about triggers. What does it mean to be triggered? How to cope when you're triggered? And I wanted to start, if you'll permit me, Reed, with a story trigger me <laughs> no, we <laughs> okay. love we love triggers around here yeah well, we're going to talk about why um so story about me experiencing a trigger the other day i get a text message from a number i don't recognize and it's this long text message um saying hey this person that we know gave me your phone number said you're a psychologist i need your help desperately hmm. and you know i'm in the business of helping people but uh when my number is, so what triggered me was this person gave my personal cell phone number to a person I don't know and told them, Hey, Steve can help you with this thing, whatever it's going to be. So I get this, I'm being vulnerable here, folks. This is not me at my best, but if you're listening, whoever passed Steve's number <laughs> right, along, it's okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you why it ended up being okay. So I get the text. It's the weekend. I'm tired I'm trying to coop, recuperate. And now somebody needs me. And, uh, I, I have a variety of responses, right? I have an emotional response of a little bit of annoyance that somebody gave my number away without my permission. Um, I have an emotional response of some anxiety, like, am I really going to be able to help this person? Mm. What are they, what do they have to dish out to me? Uh, you know, they're expecting me to be this expert helper and maybe I won't be able to help them. So there's some fear and some anxiety. So I have some emotions that are triggered by this event, right? This text message. And how do I choose to respond to this particular trigger? Well, I choose to avoid it, at least at this moment, because I don't want to feel these uncomfortable feelings of frustration at my friend or of anxiety and fear at dealing with the potential conversation I'm going to have with this person. So I avoid it and you know, I go about my day, but I feel this sort of little lightning rod in my, in my chest. Mm-hmm. That's what anxiety feels like to me, just this buzzing energy in my sternum. And it's uncomfortable. And the more I avoid, I might get little, little bit of relief occasionally, depending on what I'm doing, eating some food or I'm, you know, watching something on YouTube or whatever. Uh, but each time it enters yeah. my consciousness again, I'm feeling really uncomfortable and it's intensifying. So then, you know, I, I remember that one of the best ways to deal, at least for me, 
with the anxiety triggered by something like this is to move toward it. We've talked about that on the podcast mm-hmm. with respect to fear and other negatively valenced emotions. So I just say, I just return, I return the text. It's like, hey, uh, I'd love to chat. I've got some time now. Do you? And this person calls me and we end up having a really good conversation. You know, this person and I had a lot in common. They really just wanted somebody to, who was an expert mm-hmm. on the problem that they had, hear them out, give them some advice about helping a friend who was in dire straits. I was able to give that advice. I was able to give them, you know, some resources, some links to some resources. And then we end the call and I feel so light. You know, I feel what yeah. I what I wanted to feel by avoiding <laughs> the conversation, I feel instead way better by just engaging the thing that I was avoiding. Mm, the obstacle really is the path. Becomes the path. Yeah. Because what do I really want in life? I want more freedom and aliveness and love and peace. But I got that not by avoiding the emotions that were triggered, but by staying present with them and saying, what is this really about? Okay. And now act. And I chose the engagement action. I'm going to actually do the thing that I'm avoiding doing. And that's what quote unquote resolved the emotion. Um, But it didn't resolve it by making it go away. It resolved it by bringing me toward, you know, more of what I want in life, which Mm -hmm. is the satisfaction of helping people, of contributing to the reduction of suffering in society, those kinds of things. So yeah, that's my, that's my yeah. trigger story. I like it. And uh, the same thing happened to me like two weeks ago. I think <laughs> I told you briefly, yeah. and I'll tell the 10 second version, but same thing. I got a text message uh, from someone else. Heads up, I'm introducing you to my significant other who needs help. Mm-hmm. And then in comes the message before, as I'm reading the first one, <laughs> And it's like well into the evening, and I was my initial reaction was like, "Oh, um, I'm chilling," mm-hmm. or or whatever. I was like, "Wait a second! I've been telling myself that I love people, I love helping people, and I actually have time right now. And why the hell not?" Yeah. <laughs> so I said the same thing: "I actually have time right now," mm-hmm. and and proceeded to have a beautiful conversation with someone, and made this new connection with these people, um, even if. Uh, all I was doing was sharing my two cents for 10 minutes about, uh, you know, or even listening, just uh, just being right. present. So, And uh, like you said, I love that you said you felt lighter after, mm-hmm. um, after going through that, that uh, path of resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think these are two great examples of what we mean by triggers. So... To me, a trigger is when some kind of stimulus, whether it's external, like the text message, or it's internal, like a thought um, or a sensation, it evokes some kind of response. And it's typically an emotional response, right? We've talked about emotions on this podcast a lot, the difference between primary and secondary emotions, for example. But emotions are these sort of experiential phenomena that are are triggered. They sort Mm -hmm. of arise and are evoked. Yeah. And... They often uh, carry with them a prompt, or we call it an action tendency, like, you ought to do something about this. And a lot of us are held hostage by our triggered emotions, because either we don't have a lot of insight into why the emotion, that particular emotion is triggered, Mm -hmm. or like I uh, talked about in my example, we're really uncomfortable with the presence of that emotion. And we've learned through bad programming, so to speak, or trauma, what have you, that uh, instead of dealing with it, we quote unquote deal with it by avoiding or numbing or interrupting. 
Spiritual bypassing, yeah. even, perhaps. Do you yeah. want to talk about that term? <laughs> That's a term you know we used a couple of times on the podcast, and you hear a lot of it in sort of the psychedelic therapy world. What's spiritual bypassing? Yeah, sure. And um, just to back up a tiny bit mm-hmm. while it's fresh on my mind, one of my favorite ways of looking at triggers is uh, the saying that when it's hysterical, it's historical. I love that. So I've when, blown people's mind with that quote, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> when something... Uh, elicits in you a big reaction, you or someone around you. Mm-hmm. It's just so helpful to me to remember, ah, we just pushed a button, a very useful button. And this could be very um, good content for them and their healing journey for you and your personal work. Um, so that's uh, that's a good reminder. But spiritual bypassing is kind of a a term used more and more these days that just ta- that just means avoidance or repressing mm-hmm. in the name of uh, spirituality, right. like um, avoiding anything negative, including negative emotions. Saying it's all good, it's all. I mean, I love the saying from Ram Dass, "It's all perfect." But you could see how you could use that mm-hmm. to uh, bypass the work, right? Because yeah. what he he's not saying it's all perfect never feel a negative emotion no. again, right? I mean, yeah. it's the negativity is also perfect because it's all part of human experience. Mm-hmm. I think in the psychedelic medicine world, you'll find people who are kind of going to one ceremony retreat uh, after the other, or they're, you know, they're going to go to Sedona every week or something like that. Yeah. And they're sort of addicted to the medicine experience and not allowing, this is kind of my own interpretation of spiritual bypass applied to the psychedelic space, but mm-hmm. you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, not allowing the work to be done, the integration work. Yeah. And, and that means like living life in normal conscious, the normal conscious world, which is where you reside most of the time with all your triggers, with all the challenges, with all the imperfections. Yeah. I think it's also related to what we hear called the toxic positivity movement where, you know, yeah. uh, which as I understand it is like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. Uh, every lesson should be, or every failure should be a lesson, that kind of stuff where you don't allow people to actually feel their negative feelings. Yeah. You can see how there's a fine line because it's all in the name of this, like, kind of these beautiful teachings that might be, um, you know, mistaken for, uh, an easy way out. Yeah. But, uh, there's this, um, there's this meditation teacher I like. He wrote a book called uh, The Science of Enlightenment, mm. Shinzen Young. And he gives an analogy in that book of consciousness and this, this path to um, kind of the supreme self as a three-layered cake. Where, and I've probably given this analogy before. My apologies if I've already said it on this podcast. But, but repetition is a good, good kind of it trigger. It is, and we're collecting new listeners all the time, so... For the new listeners, here's the three-layered cake analogy. Three-layered cake. So um, we're on the surface right now of the cake. We're walking around in the icing. And when you start doing deep inner work, whether it's psychedelic therapy or a contemplative meditative practice or therapy deep dive, in that inner layer but beneath the surface, you will likely encounter one of two things. Skeletons in the closet that are scary um, or interesting distractions. Like you take... You take a medicine, say psilocybin or ayahuasca, and you see all these beautiful shapes and colors. And if you just stay there, then you're not going down to the inner innermost layer, which is source or mm-hmm. the real destination. You might feel some of it. You might bask in the warm light of, of where you're really wanting to head. But uh, 
there's a chance that your vector of transformation gets a little derailed by the spiritual distractions and mm. spiritual materialism. It's not exactly touching on spiritual bypassing, but it's kind of a, a related concept I like to point out. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm having an intrusive thought. Uh, if we ever decide to do merch, I think uh, <laughs> something like triggers our friends to follow or um, what was the term you used a second ago? Uh, if it's hysterical, it's hysterical. It's historical. That would be a great t-shirt. I'm also oh, yeah. thinking chop water carry wood would be really funny. Like an image of somebody with an ax chopping at water and then like <laughs> the two barrel, the two like buckets with pieces of wood in them. That seems like something that uh, would be one of those, I don't know, tests you see on the internet or social media of whether you read it right or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just love mixing that up. Anyway. Um, you love triggering people. I do. Maybe I do. Maybe because it shows people. you the work. These are signposts mm -hmm. for where you're in need of healing. And, you know, what's interesting to me is, okay, can I offer another story? Please. <laughs> um, sitting in ayahuasca once upon a time in a far off land. Um, and I can't remember even if I was uh, like on puke bu bucket patrol mm -hmm. or um, participating but I remember someone was really, really bothered early on by the noise around, like mm -hmm. anyone's whispering, anyone's throwing up, was highly, highly triggering, and they could not get into their own experience. Mm -hmm. And um, they were just stewing in that, and it, it was such a striking example to me of how the triggers, the reactions, while they show us the work, they also represent like both the path to liberation and, and we could, you can kind of see why pretty easily, or we could talk about why, um, you know, they're an opportunity or a big obstacle that's mm -hmm. in the way of you getting to where you'd really like to be, this liberated place of freedom. Right. Yeah. yeah I heard a, a story from a friend of mine in a meditation circle where this, one of the other participants had noisy clothing on. Yeah. Every time they moved, it was like vinyl or something. I don't know, yeah. like rustling and stuff. Um, and he's like, man, this noisy clothing was ruining my meditation experience. And I talked to my teacher about it. And, you know, my teacher said that that was your meditation that day, you know, that your annoyance yeah. was the thing to open up to and stay present with and learn from. Like yeah. you were saying, the obstacle becomes the path or the obstacle is the way. Like in meditation, the distraction that comes up, whether it's a sound or your wandering monkey mind, mm -hmm. that represents the opportunity to do the work and gently like you've said before, begin again, right. uh, or compassionately, non-judgmentally, rein it back in, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, otherwise. So that gave you an opportunity to flex that muscle mm -hmm. and work it out that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you were just naturally, perfectly good at emptying the mind. <laughs> yeah, flexing the muscle—that's a, a metaphor I'll use a lot when I'm teaching my clients about the purpose of that particular kind of meditation. Is that the work is not to be. Uh, completely present or have an empty mind or to be 100% focused on your breath. Instead, the work, if you think about, let's say you wanted to build a bigger bicep, you have, you know, your muscles extended, the joint is open, and you have the the dumbbell at point A, and you're moving it from point A to point B, right? You're mm -hmm. curling this dumbbell. You know, the, the point is not to get to point B. Otherwise, you just hold the dumbbell there. The point yeah. is to move it. So the, the movement is the rep, right? So when you're in meditation, the movement from distraction back to your anchor point is the rep. The harder, the better. Exactly. 
And so if something is particularly emotionally triggering for you in meditation, a sound or like suddenly you're confronted with a memory that's, you know, really, really distressing to you, mm -hmm. it's wonderful. It feels like shit. Good. Because that's the work, the opportunity to sit presently with it and then return to your anchor point. Yeah, and At we least for that kind of meditation. We often get distracted by the actual... The actual trigger, um, like we like we mean with that quote, when it's hysterical, it's historical, um, because if you well, this is an analogy from Gabor Mate. Mm -hmm. He he uses a the analogy of a gun that has a trigger, and um, there happen to be other things in that gun, like explosive stuff and ammunition and all the the shooting mechanisms. Um, and if you're trying to figure out what went wrong or why this thing went off and you're just looking at the trigger, you're missing most of the puzzle, right? Right. Which is actually like, what was this explosive stuff that made it go off? And what is this ammo that went flying somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. And if I think about that metaphor, you know, something external to the weapon act activated the trigger, right? So you could spend a lot of time fretting about this thing that's external that triggered you or the, you know, the weapon, yeah. or you could worry about what you have access to, which is all the internal workings of the gun. You're right? the one with the ammo and the explosive stuff inside, right. even if someone pulled your trigger. Right. Yeah. So this is the reason, you know, I started the podcast a little playfully about trigger warnings. Um, I feel a little conflicted about trigger warnings as, as, as such in sort of public discourse. Like I'm going to start a tweet with a trigger warning. Mm -hmm. um, I feel conflicted about it because I think there are some instances where it seems to make sense. You know, if somebody's an avid listener to this podcast and all of a sudden we started a podcast with a graphic depiction of a sexual assault or something like that, mm -hmm. providing no warning, we could really, really disturb somebody. Yeah. And it would be super out of character for the way we typically run this podcast. So for, for whatever reason we were going to have that content, for me, it would make sense to give people some warning. Mm -hmm. um, but there are other, other circumstances where, you know, you, you can't take care of everybody all the time. And sometimes, like we're talking about today, being a little stirred up is good. It can be a great yeah. opportunity. Not everyone's going to use it in a healthy way. I certainly don't all the time. But I don't know that we should uh, give trigger warnings and make safe spaces and nerf the entire world because then we rob people of opportunities for growth. Just like with parenting or your kids, mm -hmm. if you parent with white gloves on and antibacterial spray all the time and you're tiptoeing around on eggshells and never let any external influence uh, come near your kids, then you're depriving them of even building an immune system because they never touch or get to eat dirt. Right. <laughs> and uh, they also don't have those formative experiences that get to flex those muscles of life that actually uh, will come in quite handy as you yeah. go out on your own and fly the coop. Yeah, maybe a better way of doing parenting is allowing your children to do dangerous things carefully. You know, that's how you that's how you learn. And there's always the risk of being harmed, but you that's the world. Like <laughs> that's yeah. that's life. There's risk of being harmed. So as you're saying, if you protect them from all those risks, they don't develop the emotional immunity, actual physical immunity to the things that will do them harm. Yeah, there's this story of when Ram Das went to India, and I just had to throw in a Ram Das story yeah. of the day. Wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be complete without a Ram Das story. And uh, he was he prefaced it by saying, "I was a highly 
potty trained child and mm. proper and <laughs> protected from uh, most terrible dirt and grime and germs. But he gets to India and he gets into his room and he has dysentery already. Like he's got traveler's diarrhea and then just the flies, the smell, and he just started wallowing in self-pity when he walked in this room. But then he remembered his spiritual practice. He's like, uh-uh. He backs up, he goes out the door and he comes back in. And he's like, I'm here. Mm. And he just he just uh, celebrates the fact that he's here and goes in with a new perspective. And and I, I, that story stuck with me when I've uh, gone to places like that. Even when I went into India, I remember it was kind of funny seeing uh, the room I was staying in and just the drip and the humidity and the noises or walking down the streets where, you know, there's a cow every, um, every 10 feet and a scooter buzzing by that's so loud and um, would make me startle. But um, just shifting that perspective to one of like, like shift your mindset to one of like appreciation or the positive side of that coin without spiritual bypassing um, helps you get out of that self-imposed suffering because the universe didn't meet your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. A process like you're describing is a great way to learn about yourself and grow as a result. And it's a great way to build grit and resilience so that you can live in this very difficult world that we live in effectively. Yeah. Um, that being said, I don't think what we're implying is that, uh, a person should just expose them to all expose themselves to all the things that make them uncomfortable all of the time. We do need to protect our nervous systems. Sometimes mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense to retreat, recharge, to rest. And that means protecting yourself from things that might possibly trigger you. So, yeah. you know, one of the ways I think of it as an introvert myself, I really enjoy social communication, social contact, being with people. Uh, but it's not the way I recharge my batteries. It's the way I discharge my batteries doing things that I want. The way I recharge my batteries is in solitude, contemplation, a long warm shower, you know, um, where I'm protected from something that might trigger me so that I can then be well charged and, uh, handle my triggers in a more, I guess, awake and healthy, enlightened way. Mm -hmm. The obstacle is the path. The obstacle is the path. I was thinking about other ways that we get triggered because we've been talking about emotional reactions to triggers, right? Mm-hmm. You could make the argument that um, habits, like when we engage in habitual behavior, that that's in response to a kind of trigger. You know, some of the habit experts and the behaviorists will claim that a good 80% of what we do day to day is simply triggered by some kind of chain of habitual conditioning. Um, if you've ever read a book like Atomic Habits by James Clear or uh, I think The Power of Habit, Habit by Charles Duhigg, they talk about this habit circle where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a trigger. That's the cue, which leads to a, uh, how does it go? Yeah, cue craving. So, yeah. you know, I, I smell cigarette smoke and let's say I'm a smoker or I drive by that one gas station I typically get cigarettes from. Now I have the craving for cigarettes which leads to the response or the behavior. I go and I smoke, which then reduces the discomfort of the craving. And uh, that's the reward, which reinforces the power of the cue. Mm-hmm. Hence, you have that cycle. Um, so I think it can be helpful to be thoughtful about the various ways in which yeah. we get triggered if we're going to be working with those triggers. And I like that example because I think the remedy, the work is pretty similar in the two, whether you're talking about triggering a craving 
uh, in addiction work or triggering an emotional reaction, uh, one of the approaches or one of the next steps is to sit with it or put a little bit of space between mm-hmm. stimulus and response. Mm-hmm. And whether you're triggered and the emotional action, the emotional uh, reaction is like rage and you just want to yell some mean things, um, remembering to sit with that and um, do some of this trigger work before you react because your reaction might be a little bit out of proportion to the situation. Just like when you're triggered with a, uh, you know, to engage in some addictive behavior pattern or even say binge eating, um, one of my favorite s- approaches is just put some time in there, some mindfulness, or sit with that uh, for longer and longer, using all the supports you can um, to surf the craving to the other side of that without engaging in that vicious cycle. So you used a lot of terms that we typically use in the addiction treatment world, right? Surfing, like urge surfing is Mm -hmm. one of those fun terms. Or sit with that is something like if you follow any therapist on social media, (laughs) if you've ever been to therapy yourself, you've probably been told sit with that. Mm -hmm. Or especially if your therapist is is, uh, mindfulness inclined at all, right? So what does it really mean to sit with a, a trigger? Um, it can mean a lot of different things, but it can literally mean sit down and then just become aware of, as you said, without reacting to or, or doing anything to stop the feeling, what this feeling feels like. What does it feel like in your body? What does it make you want to do? Mm-hmm. What memories does it bring up for you? Um, you know, and you sit with it long enough that it ebbs and flows. It you know intensifies and then eventually goes away on its own. And if you can do that enough, then the the sort of the power of the connection between the cue and the response weakens. And now you have freedom. This is yeah. the sort of sometimes counterintuitive concept about sitting with triggers is yeah. that when you allow the trigger to be, when you allow what has been triggered to be, um, you no longer become a slave to it. And now you have freedom. You have freedom to experience whatever you're going to experience, to learn what it has to teach you, and then to behave with deliberate action instead of, oh, you know, I, I smelled the cigarette smoke. I have to smoke. You don't have to. It can feel very, very difficult not to. But if you open yourself up to discomfort, it's okay for me to feel discomfort. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the world of possibilities has, has widened for you on what you can create, what you can do. Yeah, it's that distress tolerance that can be so useful. And like you pointed out, of course, you can't work it out all the time, just like you can't a muscle. You will injure it or overwhelm it. But um, you can work out your nervous system, and you definitely should rest it. Uh, um, It reminds me, just earlier today, I got this text message from a friend saying, um, cold plunging in the Provo River. Mm. 4 p.m. if you want to join. There's a trigger for you. <laughs> I was like, well, my trigger was like, oh, I'm podcasting with Steve. I can't make it. Um, Reed likes to be very cold. Because I would be there. And you know why I like those? Because that's a that's a recent practice. I mean, one I've indulged in off and on for a while, but lately I've just seen the beauty in it um, and started to learn some things about myself in the process of of cold plunging um, in my own backyard or with mm-hmm. uh, with my brother or with friends, um, because once you, you're going into this dis- discomfort and the inclination is to 
tense up. And for those who don't haven't tried it, <laughs> it's uh, basically going into a very cold tub or body of water for you know a short amount of time and trying not to freak out. <laughs> and you're you're uh, the more you relax, the better. Right, because if you start hyperventilating, it just gets worse, um, and that brings up so many other examples of uh, like Sananga that we could talk about too. Yeah. But but uh, so through this practice, I've realized um, a lot about you know what I avoid and why. Like, oh, I don't want to go in there, or even if I'm going to go do it with other people, that becomes a little easier for me to do. Why? Like, what is it about the presence of a supportive other? peer pressuring me in a positive way. And then when I get in there, if I start tensing up or breathing too fast, it's a lot more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. rather than if I just breathe. Um, And it's this really brief way of working out your nervous system or training it to handle some distress. Um, That's a really good example of learning from your triggers. Like when you said, I'm more comfortable with other people there, why? Uh, most of us don't think that way about our emotions that get triggered, right? We're just like, I feel terrible. I don't, I don't want to feel terrible anymore. How can I solve for this? So when you change your orientation to your triggers and start asking these why questions, bringing gentle, compassionate curiosity to Mm -hmm. the feelings that you would normally want to stop or run from, you can learn a tremendous amount about who you are. And then you will discover, oh, you know, I'm, I don't love this this thing that I do in response to this particular trigger. Yeah. It's responsible for a lot of some of the less than rational decisions I've made in my life or some of the patterns that I find myself engaged in where I'm like, why do I keep dating people like this? Or why do I keep reacting this way when it really isn't, it doesn't line up with my internal core values. That's the stuff you can learn if you're willing to treat the obstacle as the path. Because if you don't do this inner work, if you don't shine a light on the, shadow parts of yourself Mm -hmm. and try and understand why you do the things you do or why you respond to stimuli in the world the way you do, then that unseen stuff will direct your life and you will call it fate as Carl Jung says. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, are there any other ways we want to define triggers for people that, uh, we haven't touched yet that makes sense before we move on to what we can do about it? We've, we're kind of touching on that already, but no, I think we've I covered think it. We've covered it, because there's a lot of different cool techniques and attitudes that you can use to do. If you want to call it trigger work or shadow work. Okay, I did think of one. So interrupt you mid sentence <laughs> um, on purpose. Thank I didn't you. really do it on purpose, but I wasn't but triggered. I was just thinking about how um, transference in therapy mm-hmm. is a kind of uh, trigger or um, it's a kind of projection. And one thing we often see is this, uh, like in relationships, as an example, one of the common ways of examples of projection in therapy is when someone, uh, when someone, um, you know, blames someone for something in themselves, they're inappropriately projecting their, their negative emotions. Like when it's really, um, you who were doing the, the infidelity, let's say, and you're mm-hmm. blaming it on them, you mm-hmm. know, throwing your own stuff at another person. And it's just another example of how triggers can get in the way of doing your own work. 
And, you know, transference and countertransference was something we got from the psychoanalysts. And another really good category of things that I think is related are defense mechanisms, right? You could probably make the argument that um, transference is a defense mechanism. We are defending against having to be conscious of material we've relegated to our unconscious mm -hmm. because we don't want to have to deal with it. So a typical defense mechanism might be uh, displacement. You know, yeah. let's say you're at work and you hate your boss. Your boss makes you want to strangle somebody. You can't strangle your boss because then you'd lose your job. So you go home and, you know, you uh, break something or you yell at your kids or something like that. So that's taking the object of your frustration and displacing it. You're moving it to somewhere, something else, because that's what you feel like you can handle. Yeah, another example that comes to mind that might show up in therapy is Steve's the therapist seeing a client, uh, the client, and gives them some homework. The client says, what the hell? I'm not doing homework. This isn't school. What am I yeah. paying you for? And uh, they just, you were trying to do them a favor by giving them some work because you can only do so much in that hour of therapy, right? Mm -hmm. But because they may have had some authoritarian teacher who just, you know, and that stuck with them at a young age, you just pushed a button. Yeah. And that reaction got in the way of them doing some potentially helpful work. It's a great example. It's a great example of, you know, if you don't make the unconscious conscious, it will dictate your life and you will call it fate. Because for this person in your example, you know, they might reflect in the future, how come people never help me? How can I can never get the help that I need? <laughs> I've turned to this person and this person and this person and nobody will help me. When people yeah. are helping you, just not in a way that you'll accept. Yeah, a really good example. Um, so back to your ideas of what, how to work with triggers. How to work with triggers. Yeah. We've touched on a few things already. You know, becoming present to and sitting with. We talked about that. Your triggers so that you can um, follow them all the way down. There's, there's techniques that therapists will use to help people work with triggers like this. You mentioned Gabor Mate earlier. He has his compassionate inquiry mm -hmm. strategy, which I've never been formally trained on, but as I understand it, it's, it's a lot like our um, process of self-exploration that we do with some of our folks when we do emotion-focused ketamine-assisted therapy, uh, where we're inviting people to remember, let's say, the most recent trigger that you've experienced on, in your life. And then you just sort of picture it, feel it, get into it. And then, and then uh, you ask yourself, okay, when I felt this way, what did it make me want to do? Or what did it make me feel in a deeper way? So, you know, this person annoyed me and it made me feel unloved. It made mm -hmm. me feel unwanted. So then you take that and you, you trace that back to the earliest time in your life that you can remember that you felt that way. So let's say unloved. And you, you know, you imagine a scenario in which you felt unloved and then you picture this, you know, let's say it was when you were five, this little five-year-old version of you sitting there feeling unloved. And then you imagine your adult self, you know, your grown ass self mm -hmm. going there with all of your lessons learned and all of your strength. And you try to give to that younger version of you what that younger version of you didn't get. So you have this sort of loving exchange interaction between adult you and younger you to get this trigger to soften a little bit. Uh, I think compassionate inquiry is similar to that. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I watched an interaction between Gabor and Tim Ferriss where Gabor kind of walked him through this. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of compassionate inquiry in action because yeah. um, in the ayahuasca retreat settings I've worked in out of the country, the co-therapists were almost all trained 
his first class of compassion inquiry mm-hmm. um, clinicians, and uh, and he had started that um, retreat. In fact, yeah. and you could see the the signature of his like naturally brilliant style there, and it was beautiful work. Like um, honoring these emotions and using them as these signposts for where to do the work, and doing it in a way like a really compassionate way, mm-hmm. um, being supported by the the therapist or the group setting you're in as you peel away the layers and go back to those early places because these these are often laid down early in life like in the bosom of the family right. in childhood um, from parents especially and formative others um, and when we're in that most malleable state and then they just show up later in life, and uh, we don't totally remember why. Good for Gabor on, on the name. I think it's trademarks. Compassionate inquiry is perfect. It's yeah. a perfect sort of summary of what that process is. And if, if you look at the uh, a lot of the spiritual teachers over the past uh, several decades or hundreds of years there, you'll often find these methods of inquiry or Mm -hmm. self-inquiry. And another reason I like this compassionate inquiry name, like you pointed out, is because the inquiry part, I think, is a missing ingredient on the path to transformation. Like meditation, while beautiful and beneficial and important um, in and of itself, doesn't get you to full self-realization, self-knowledge mm-hmm. without th- going deeper and deeper, this inward journey, step after step of what is underneath the hood or what is what are the unseen forces at play driving me in my life. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, other ways to deal with triggers, um, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT a therapy uh, created by Marsha Linehan, typically deployed for people with borderline personality disorder or just struggle who, with emotion regulation. They'll, they'll deal with triggers in a, lot, in a variety of ways. It's a very mindfulness-based approach to therapy. And one of them is something they call opposite action. Mm-hmm. Um, so opposite action being you've been triggered. Let's say you're triggered and you feel really angry. So instead of immediately acting on that anger by shouting at somebody or cussing somebody out, you first stop, pause, sit with, like we talked about, the emotion, uh, try to inquire, what is, this, what is this all about? And then act in the opposite way of your anger. Mm-hmm. So as quickly as you can, think about the reasons why you love that person. Or if that's too much, imagine them as a child and uh, you know the history of their lives that might have led up to this moment when they said something insensitive to you. You try to engage, at least in the case of anger at somebody, it's sort of opposite, uh, which would be compassion, which would be love. Um, You could apply this to anxiety too, right? To me, anxiety, we've talked about this a variety of different ways on our podcast, but the best way to handle anxiety is to run toward it instead of away from it. You know, anxiety is the emotion that says something bad's gonna happen, run away. And you can dissolve it really quickly in most cases by having, they're engaging in the opposite action, running toward. Yeah, that's what we talk about. That's what we mean when we talk about like transforming emotion with emotion or these hacks. And there are many of them, like you said, like you can move energy just like, you know, when 
triggered or when traumatized in the wild, like, uh, you know, Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk will talk about in their trauma books, when, when an animal is triggered or traumatized afterwards, when that threat subsides, they may need to go out in the field and just shake it off and right. shake off the energy. Um, and I've certainly noticed that in, uh, in my own life. When there's an intense thing that happens or an intense dialogue with someone else, uh, we've mentioned some of these things, like the passage of time goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> just like pausing when something gets heated and coming back or go on a walk or if I go get on or do some like practice like yoga <laughs> and move that energy, it's just amazing what it does to uh, kind of shake some of that off and come back at it with a fresh perspective. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I don't want people to get the impression that uh, we're implying you have to stay immediately present with all of your uncomfortable feelings yeah. all the time. <laughs> sometimes the thing to do is to take a break from what you're experiencing. It Sometimes the thing to do is to distract. Yeah. But if, it's, I think, healthiest when you do what you just described. You come back to it, having you know calmed down or discharged, mm -hmm. shaken it off. Yeah, so when triggered... What I like to do is, well, one, remember to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> That's key. Remember to breathe and and ask yourself, and this, and this is all brief. It can happen very, very quickly. Ask yourself, you know, what does my nervous system need right now? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or um, how is my nervous system? And then you can, uh, you know, you can go into these other steps. Um, and that process you mentioned, like the process of self-exploration that we do with people, um, clients and clinicians in training all the time, and it may take 10, 15 minutes in its full entirety. When you practice it a lot, it almost becomes reflexive. Mm -hmm. Like you can do it in real time. And what I've noticed in in others and in myself is the more I practice that, and, and we have a, you know, we can put a link in the notes to recorded ones mm -hmm. that many of us have um, on YouTube or yeah. whatever, but um, I've noticed that it gives me either a lot of self-compassion, understanding, or towards the other who triggered me, or both, <laughs> which because you have this new understanding of like, oh, it wasn't the little trigger on the gun. Like they just did me a little bit of a favor <laughs> by bumping into it that set off this ammo inside of me. And now I have it on the surface that I can actually work with and it's not unseen anymore. Right, right. You know, I just had a thought about uh, what we do in couples counseling. You know, a, a lot of couples come into a, come to us because they're triggering the shit out of each other, right? Um, and it's, you know, if it's hysterical, it's historical. John and Julie Gottman, these couples therapy researchers, um, they talk about the stories behind conflict mm -hmm. that you try to coach couples to, into understanding that like when your spouse is, or your partner is reacting to you in a way that seems irrational or over the top, or you don't understand it, a lot of times it's not about you. That's, it's about a, a history. It's about mm -hmm. a story. It's about a story of them feeling unloved. And they're reacting, they're reacting to that entire history, not just to whatever you did to trigger that feeling in them. So one of the things we do is we teach people to uh, take care of their own nervous systems, the way you were just describing. Mm -hmm. We need to take a time out, honey. Uh, I'm yeah. feeling really angry, and I, I'm not confident that if we kept going in this conversation that I would be kind. So let's take 24 hours. Let's take two hours, whatever it is. 
I need to go back and chill out and then let's, you know, reapproach this conversation. So that's a way of handling triggers, you know, where you can take a break from it in the context of a relationship and then come back as your best self and try to repair and understand. Yeah, and imagine if we all just inserted a pause in between everything coming at us in daily life that triggers us and how we react. The sacred pause. Yeah, things would be a bit different. Especially if in that pause we stopped holding our breath. Like you were saying, just breathe. Yeah, yeah so I mentioned uh, Sananga as another way of personally doing trigger work and we've talked about it in here before but I bring it up because I just had some of these crazy eye drops put in my eyes Mm -hmm. the other day again Mm -hmm. and it was it was awesome because this is a plant medicine that's fully legal as a disclaimer Um, and also as a disclaimer I do not recommend that anyone run out and try this Um, but it's a, a plant medicine in eye drops that uh gives you a burning sensation for a minute or so Mm -hmm. after it's put in your eyes and it's often done ceremonially um and has some benefits for like uh you know clearing the the retina cornea um some anti-inflammatory properties or whatever but um it's used more for its uh i believe for its discomfort (laughs) as a practice um because the first time I ever experienced it, my inclination was to tense up. I even tried to sit up, and the, the shaman was like, she's like, grabs me by the head and says, oh, no, you don't. Puts my head down and says, breathe. And I was like, okay. Mm. And, um, and it, was, it was amazing, the difference. And that, that uh, happened again when I had um, a Sananga experience the other day. Not as dramatically. Like, I knew not to sit up and... I didn't have the same shaman who was going to th- throw my head back down into the mat, right. but I, I could feel myself tensing up. I could feel it getting harder to sit with as I wasn't breathing and I was tensing. Um, just like when you get into a cold plunge and do that. But as I told myself, gently remind myself to breathe, it became bearable and I was able to ride the wave of that. Um, it's amazing these principles that just or it can be universally applied to so many things for whatever. Yeah. When, you, when you were talking about tensing, I thought about my wife giving birth <laughs> and we did something called husband coached childbirth. Um, uh-huh. That's just the, the trademark. It could be anybody coached, but in our case it was husband coached where my wife decided she didn't want to um, have an epidural. She wanted to deliver our children without, without that on board, um, which meant it was very uncomfortable for her. And so we went to these classes and learned basically like hypnobirthing strategies, or I would coach her to, relax and to breathe were the main coaching cues. And she learned some, some different, uh, self-hypnosis strategies to kind of go to a happy place while her, you know, uh, the lower half of her body was being torn apart, <laughs> uh-huh. children exiting. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, but it was the tension apart when she, from when she needed to push mm-hmm. that was, uh, slowing the birth process down. Right. And you can apply that to so many things. There's lots of Buddhist principles oh, yeah. that talk about this. What we resist persists. Uh, our attachment to desire is what leads to suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, our inability to let what is be is what causes us to be unhappy. Hence the mantra we dish out so often here, surrender. Mm-hmm. As you're going into a psychedelic therapy experience or to apply in life. And not as a, I surrender in defeat. Mm-hmm. As a, 
okay, I'll stop trying to fight what actually is (laughs) and make things much harder so I can actually flow with life. Right. Yeah. And who wouldn't want to flow with life? Yeah. There's, uh, it reminds me of this idea that I think um, straddles the fence of both like spirituality and psychology of, you know, pain being very real. Like if we define pain as like, that uh, sensation, um, there's the emotional reaction to pain that creates a lot of our suffering. And that's something we can do something about. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't always change the pain, but you can certainly uh, change or work on your reaction to it. Um, there's this, uh, this other spiritual teacher out of India, Ramana Maharshi, who um, he had a student once asked him when he had some disease, the student asked, like, teacher, is this, is this disease causing you pain? He's like, of course, but what does that have to do with me? You know, just because the lesson in there was that he was not identified with the pain. I am not my body. I'm not even my mind. Um, I'm not the feelings that are the language of the body. I'm not the thoughts that are the language of my mind. I'm I'm that awareness behind it, and therefore, um, I don't get so caught up in the actual pain or sensations or thoughts. Yeah. So much power in that. There's so much power in that. If, if you can spend as much time as you can as the container, right, instead of the things yeah. in the container, it gives you so much freedom and so much possibility instead of just being jerked around by your <laughs> yeah. triggers or your desire for... Uh, to not feel what's been triggered. Jerked around's a good way to think about it. Yeah, because you'd rather be deliberately on your way. You'd rather be pointed in the direction you want to go instead of constantly thrown off or pulled off of that trajectory. Mm-hmm. So this nice balance between you know, going with the flow, so you follow the river. But, be like water. Yeah, there you go. Um, or like a willow tree. <laughs> it just reminds me of in the... Uh, like ayahuasca world, there are these dietas you can do, not the dieta leading up to ceremony, but a dieta with a specific plant uh, to commune with that plant and like gain some of the properties or powers of that plant. And one of them um, that you can diet with is willow, a willow tree or willow because of its like flexibility. Um, Because if something's like stiff and rigid and you know, a stimulus or trigger comes along, it might break. But if you can have that uh, malleability, bendability, flexibility, then you can bend and not break when the winds of life come along. Absolutely. Um, On our last podcast with Hannah Cross, uh, folks, you should check it out. We talked about relationships. We talked about uh, various relationship containers, talked about sex. Um, Sex. Sex. (laughs) And then you brought up a book called Existential Kink. Yeah. Which uh, intrigued me. <laughs> it's did an you intriguing go read title. It? I did. Nice. So I went and read it, and it wasn't what I expected. Um, I was expecting a book about I don't know uh, kink, frankly, but it wasn't about sexual psychology kink. book. It is. It's a, it's a book about getting kinky with your shadow, which was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And basically, the bottom line up front for me was this is a technique that uh, what's the author's, author's name? Carol Elliot, Carolyn Elliot, I think. Mm-hmm that she came up with where it's a way to stay present with the, with your triggers using uh, sort of a kinky approach. So it's like 
let's say you don't like to feel afraid and fear shows up. You say, Ooh, there you are fear. <laughs> and you get a little mm-hmm. kinky with your fear. Like, mm, this fear feeling, this is exquisitely painful. It's just a really interesting way to shift. Sorry if I made it anyway, yeah. uncomfortable. I might've just triggered a few folks. Um, but it was just a really fun, playful, interesting way to, to spend, <coughs> excuse me, to spend time mm-hmm. with your shadow, with the things that are triggered. So, yeah. yeah, good recommendation. Because then people, then you can go uh, in the context of this uh, shadow work in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. You can go take those those fears, those triggers, those things that kind of direct your path in life more than you want them to, and you can work on them in the safe container of a loving relationship, mm-hmm. even in playful ways. Yeah. yeah. What I liked about the book too is that, you know, she it didn't just stay in the bedroom. Like she's she's yeah. talking about using this strategy not only uh to have an expanded sexual life, but uh to use this technique in all forms of life. If mm-hmm. if you're triggered, you can approach your trigger in this sort of kinky way as she describes it, and it allows you to metabolize it a lot more easily, uh to learn from it in the way we've been describing so far on today's episode. So Anyway, I thought I'd shout it out since I just finished it a few days ago. Cool. Well, nice job doing some homework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for the homework. Yeah. the uh, For some reason, it reminds me of this. I think it was from Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way. Yeah. And uh, it was an old, like, Greek war story of, I think, Pericles and his uh, his troops in this time of war when an eclipse came along they didn't know what an eclipse was and it got dark Mm -hmm. and then his uh people got scared and he's like oh no how am i going to do this war he saw it as an opportunity it's dark we get to be sneaky but his people are scared and starting to fall apart so he uses this uh example or analogy and he puts a, a cloak over one of them and says like is that scary when you have a cloak over your eyes and it becomes dark? No. Then why is that Why is that scary? It's not the dark that's scary. It's your perception of the dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that's the insight you can return to over and over again. It's, And that a lot of psychotherapy is based on. We're trying to help you see that all you really have access to are your perceptions of what's mm-hmm. out there, yeah. not, not direct experience of what's out there. So if your perceptions are colored by, like I was saying before, bad programming, biases, whatever, that's your opportunity for editing the narrative. Yeah. And if you think about um, the term enlightenment, which I know is a kind of charged, triggering word, even mm-hmm. somewhat to people these days, but but I like to think of that as turning the lights on, just shining a light on something, like a radical change in perspective. And we can all access moments of that at any time, instant enlightenment by flipping on a light switch and shining a light on triggers. Reminds me of that Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen huh. song. You know, like there's a crack, there's a crack and everything. That's where the light gets in. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And we're not supposed to cover up the cracks. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to run from the cracks. Mm-hmm. That's where we get to shine light and learn from things. That's true. We'll read any other ways we want to encourage people to sit with what, the, what has been triggered to learn from their obstacles and make them the way. Any other um, bright ideas? No, just one more reminder to echo that idea that we shouldn't be ashamed of our triggers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all, it's just an acknowledgement that we've suffered pain, right? You're acknowledging that. And that's the first step is this loving awareness. And then 
we get to work with it. Yeah. It's so hard for a lot of us to do that for ourselves. Some of us are a lot better at showing compassion to others than we are at, yeah. you know, holding ourselves in a compassionate way. Yeah. But so important. How about you? Are there any last words of wisdom? No, I think we've covered the major ones I had on my mind. Uh, this is one that's important to me, and it's one that I've made a process. Well, I've made it a focus of my own inner work lately. As I'm trying to do a better job or put into practice being present with my triggers, really learning about what being present means. Um, and instead of trying to control my my experience of the present moment, surrender to my experience of the present moment. Because I have this hunch, uh, based on being taught by good people, that that will free me up a lot. So I keep coming back to this concept of freedom. Mm-hmm. And if I can learn to stay present with my triggers instead of trying to change always and alter always and control always my experience, I think life will open up. Yeah. There's one quote that just feels appropriate to share. It's mm. from Marcus Aurelius, and I I have it right here because I was looking at his book earlier. Um, Objective judgment at this very moment, unselfish action at this very moment, willing acceptance at this very moment of all external events. Mm. If you want to learn something new, read something old. Thanks, Reed. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.